0: I think it's gonna rain and then it's gonna stop. This is I Am a Griefist, a Childhood Cancer Grief Journey podcast. Okay, I think we're back. Okay, well welcome back. Hello, welcome back. We are back with Michelle. Michelle sharing about David. And so we like to come back and talk about, you know, what happens right after. What happens? We had shared, you know, it was like a gut check when my sister didn't bring the baby down the stairs again right away, you know. So what was that like for you and your family and adjusting to that?
1: Well, you know, it's hard. I mean, I just... Like I, I said to you, I think when we were starting, you know, my son died twenty one years ago. And mm-hmm. so as I was preparing to talk to you about this, you know, I I had to really think back. And I was reading my journals because i I kind of wanted to remind myself and I was noting in my journals how much I was thinking about my thinking mm-hmm. because I'd never been through this before and was keenly aware I'm if you've ever done strengths finder mm-hmm. um, I'm Connectedness and introspection. And, you know, I'm so much in my head. And as an educator, as well, working in early childhood, you know, all of this was so much of my thinking was about my thinking, where I would think about how devastated I was and yet was living anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm Yes. And I think for me, I, I remember the word that I, I mean, and it's still, it's not, it's not just back then. The word is surreal. Isn't Mm -hmm. it surreal Mm -hmm. to go through your regular life and, you know, get done with something mundane and think, I used to think, I don't believe I just did that, Mm -hmm. like the world is okay or Mm -hmm. the world is not. Shopping, shopping in the grocery store was such a big one where I think nobody knows I, my son died. Mm -hmm. Everybody's just here shopping like it's just normal. Yes. It's not normal. Yes. Can anyone think the world is even okay? Mm -hmm. It's this idea of living a reality that you don't see around you. Yeah. I early on sort of thought about this metaphor, especially because, as I mentioned, I was an early childhood parent educator and I did go back to work at at some point. I don't, honestly, I don't even really remember how soon I went back, but I was with families who had children my children's ages after Mm -hmm. my son died. Mm -hmm. And so we would talk about child development issues and sibling issues and they all knew what had happened to me and they would say Michelle how can you do this and i would say the fact that i lost my son too soon it just reinforces why it's so important yeah. that we pay attention to you know to our children yes. growing up and and that's why these conversations are so important and mm-hmm why I do what I do, because these, our children are so important, and losing a child, and sometimes I get, you know, of course I get weepy, and I would just say to them, don't worry, you know, of course I'm going to get teary, and, but, you know, I'm okay, I mean, this is, this is our life, yes. after we lose a loved one, uh, love it, lose a child in mm-hmm. particular, mm-hmm. And so I had this metaphor that I was skating on a frozen lake, and it was beautiful, and the the ice was, you know, sparkly, and I was skating beautifully. I was doing figure eights, and I was just skating, and people were just marveling at me skating, and ever so often, I would crash through, and nobody would notice it. And I would just crawl back out again and start skating. Mm. but right under this beautiful, smooth ice, it was black. Mm. Um, you know, right under the ice, it was black. If you look on a frozen lake, I grew up in you know northern Minnesota. We've got lots of frozen lakes in the winter, and it's black under there. And I thought I'm always skating around just a just an ice layer between the world I'm skating in. And the loss of my son. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's beautiful. that's the way I skate every day. Yes. And once in a while I fall in. And a lot of times people don't even notice. Yes. And I pull myself out again and start skating. And yes. they see me skating and think, oh, you're skating beautifully. And they don't even think about what's right under my feet.
0: Mm-hmm that's really good that's beautiful yeah i I don't yeah yeah, you say that so beautifully like i can't i don't have another word for it eloquently yeah so the thing is is that exactly how it feels yeah that's exactly Mm -hmm. how it feels yeah masking
1: just Mm -hmm. see you know they see us they see us skating and they don't know any of the rest of it and that's one of the hardest things as you know about grief is that I mean, for us as grievers, it's we are absolutely devastated and broken. We couldn't be more devastated and broken. But people who look at us don't, I mean, it's not, what are we, like people used to say to me, you're so strong. And I think, well, what do you want me to do? Be a puddle on the floor. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. and then when they think that you're strong or they think you're doing well, they don't offer you support because they don't think you need it. Right. You know, they don't talk to you. They don't ask you about it. They don't ask you how you're doing. And for me, I very you know, I was, I, re, I was reading in my journal that I was a point where I was questioning the fact that I had the peace that I had. And I was saying, I wonder if I'm gonna crash.
0: At mm, some point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And then I wrote, I don't think I'm going to because I know myself, I'm not going to crash. And I knew I wasn't going to crash, but that doesn't mean I'm not just utterly devastated. Yeah. And then my daughter was, of course, my focus. And I will just share that because I guess this is relevant, but I don't want to share a whole lot about it. We went through as a family, as I shared with you, we went through David's journey very closely as a family. And when we went, you know, people at the hospital saw us kind of as this ideal family because we had Deanna there and we were mutually supportive, um, but our marriage had had some strain. And we ended up getting divorced very soon after my son died. It was not because, uh, you know, I want to hastily add that we were not a statistic that people like to talk about where, mm-hmm. you know, parents often get divorced after a child dies. That wasn't our case because we actually were mutually very supportive of each other. Even after we divorced, there were other things going on that were the reason for our divorce that meant that i i did have full custody of my daughter so i was raising her as a single mom her dad was involved in her life but i was she was with me yeah and so i was very focused on her Mm -hmm. and i shared with you and i don't remember how soon after it was relatively soon after david died that deanna said to me mommy half of me is gone mm-hmm. and i was uh, you know that her her development as an early in her early childhood years was what i was all about and of course i thought okay this cannot be she's got her whole life ahead of her what do i do with this mm-hmm. so i really early on was living my own devastation but had this mission had this this three and a half year old in my house who lost her brother. Her dad was now gone too, and she said half of her was gone. And it was my job to make sure that she grew up okay. Mm-hmm. So you know, I thought at this at this point now, all of these years later, I think back about what I did for myself because. What I tell families now is how important it is. I mean, self-care is first and foremost Mm -hmm. what we need to do. And I, again, I think my relationship with my church, I was involved. I had a lot of support there. We had been there. They had actually, I didn't mention that David was actually born by emergency C-section. I had 40 hours of labor Whoa! and um, he was born on a Sunday morning by emergency C-section when I started having problems and the church, what church was in session and my husband called the church and they prayed. For us while I was going through this C-section with David and Mm -hmm. David was born beautiful and healthy and his APGAR scores were great and everything was fine and I was fine, but it was very scary. Mm -hmm. But they were there from the beginning and they were there, you know, for Deanna and me over, you know, in those early years too. So I just, I guess I just kind of put one foot in front of the other. And ever so often, I would think about the fact that I was living, even though my son was, was dead, you know, I mean, I know you understand that. I think that we all do that. It's like on one level we're living and then we say, oh my gosh, how, how am I living? Yeah, I'm remembering something else I need to tell you about. And that is, you know, David died in May and one thing that he had done for the uh, in the summer one thing we'd done in the summer my sister had kind of showed him this and then we had continued it we would raise monarchs in the summer oh. we would find, um, milkweed and yeah. find little, tiny itsy bitsy eggs and raise monarchs so we had done Too that cool David had done that for three summers and we'd release them into our backyard you know and he'd name them daisy and rose And the August, he died in May, the August that after he died, my sister was over and she was out in the backyard with Deanna and she called me and said, Michelle, come out here. And I came out and one of our trees was full of monarchs. And this had never happened before. You know, they go to Mexico and do this but i'd never seen this before and i actually had a book that was called on the wings of a butterfly oh. it's a beautiful book it's about a little girl I, I think she had cancer she was sick from something and she had a pet caterpillar oh. and she started to be uh feel uh funny you know and the caterpillar started to feel funny uh, you know something was happening to them and she died and the caterpillar, meanwhile, had gone into a cocoon and came out as a butterfly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the back of the book, and it was a monarch butterfly. This book was about a monarch. And in the back of the book, it had a legend. It said the legend in Mexico, which is where, of course, all these monarchs go in the winter, is that the monarch is the spirits of our loved ones. Oh my so when I saw this tree... Full of monarchs, it was, yeah, it was, that had, like I say, that had, in all the years we raised monarchs, we'd never had a tree full of monarchs until the August after David died. Wow,
0: wow, yeah,
1: I know, yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, and I had actually, because we raised butterflies, the people that I worked with when David died had given me a gift certificate to a garden center, and they wanted me to plant a butterfly garden. And maybe I had done that already, because they would have given me that in May, and then this was August. When I did that butterfly garden I researched and I am being in Minnesota you know there are plants we can't plant up here because <laughs> it cold. I really wanted to plant a butterfly bush and they said the the buddleia bush And they said, "That's for your garden. You have one. Are you?" No,
0: she she does the milkweed and she does everything monarch. So I'm telling her to take notes because I'm sure she's going to add this to her garden. Well, the problem is, is that they like the butterfly weeds. They they eat them all up. Yeah, it's crazy how much they eat. Yeah. Anyway, well, go the ahead.
1: Milkweed is what they yeah, eat the milkweed yeah, honors. the milkweed. And so I, so I, you know, I put planted some milkweed, and I also wanted other plants, mm-hmm. and so I wanted this butterfly bush. And people said uh, I got kind of conflicting messages as to whether I could plant it or not, and and expect it to live, you know, to, to survive in our through our winter because it's a perennial. Well, I decided. I and I picked out all these different plants and took them up to the to the garden center and they they I had a phlox and they said, "Oh, phlox gets mold." Mm. Um, or they first they told me I had too many plants for the area <laughs> that I was planning. Okay. And they said, "Phlox gets moldy." I don't know if that's the best or whatever. I don't remember how the conversation went, but at some point they told me, I told them why I was doing this butterfly garden. And they told me that there was a David phlox. And they said, and the David phlox does not get moldy. Oh Oh my goodness. So for my garden, I bought this David phlox. And not only was this the butterfly plant, but it's, you know, it's scientific name was Buddleia davidii. Oh, my D-A-D-I-D. God. <laughs> and I didn't find this out until I was I had thought I'm going to buy it anyway. Oh, it my goodness. It. So I had my butterfly garden with my David plants in it. Oh, my gosh. And I I probably did do that right away. So that was probably planted when the butterflies got in the tree. But that's so that's my butterfly story. I know a lot of people have butterfly and dragonfly stories. Yes, that's amazing. It is amazing. And those are all th- things that help us, yes. you know, on our, because again, what, what are the chances, you know, of, of those plants with David's name on them. Right. And, um, yeah. So I had my daughter and I was very focused on her. I was still doing my early childhood parent education and, and was recognizing i mean through this whole journey you asked earlier if i had had any you know loss in my family cancer in my family and no i hadn't so this whole journey the hospital journey and the grieving journey was all new to me mm-hmm. and i was you know, keenly aware from the way my two children interacted and what diana said to me afterwards that it was hugely impactful for her even as a very young, you know, even as that 15-month-old that was so despondent. Mm -hmm. And so I tackled the job uh, or the task of, you know, helping her grow up whole and happy. And I thought, "I, I know how to find resources. This is my field. But I could not find anything. And back then, the internet wasn't what it is now. True. But I was able, you know, I tried to research and find books. And I found very little about early childhood loss and also about sibling loss. Mm. And I knew way back then that this was something, because I'm an educator, I thought, we need this and it doesn't exist, so I'm going to have to do this. Yeah, and that yep. was on that was on my mind the whole time I was raising Deanna, and I continued for the twenty years she had. I don't know if I mentioned um, she had her twenty fifth birthday last week. Ooh, so she's now nice! High.
0: Happy birthday, Deanna, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday!
1: So she's grown, and it took me until she was grown to feel like I could actually start working with other families and in the meantime I continued to just get my hands on everything that I could about young children early childhood age children grieving and siblings and what is the sibling relationship and it really is a loss and it really is grief that is paid very little attention yeah and I meet now sometimes, Adults who were like Deanna lost a sibling at a young age who tell me my parent, I wish you'd been around when my parents lost my sibling because they didn't know how to help me and they didn't help me. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned is how significant the sibling relationship, it continues to be yeah. even after the sibling dies. And if that happens, for a child who's three and a half, when she said half of her was gone, mm-hmm. I knew that was true mm-hmm. because her identity was as a little sister to her big brother. Yes. He had been there her whole life. It was her part of her identity. Who was she without him?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was her question. And so I've coined the phrase sibling by heart, and that's who I say a sibling is to a sibling that isn't living. Is she still a sibling? Yes. Was she able to grow up with a sibling? No. So that's been my focus. And now I'm finally putting together the things that I've learned about grief for a sibling and for parents, because the parent who is parenting the sibling is a grieving parent. Mm -hmm. Yes. At the When you've got a young child at the age of three and a half, I think because I was in the field I was in, it was easier for me to focus on her. But any parent who has lost a child and we are so devastated, how do you, ta- how do you parent and how do you pay attention to what your young child needs when you are just devastated? Yes. And I was able to do that in a way that other parents... Probably can't because I already had the head start of looking at this child's development and and being focused on what she would need. Yeah. So
0: how do you do that? How do you help the children who are grieving their sibling?
1: The first thing is you need to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. You need to do self-care so that you can be with your child and then recognize that self-care doesn't mean hiding things from your child. You can be the grieving parent in front of your child and be honest with them. that being willing to be honest about the loss, even with a child, is really important. And it's kind of counterintuitive for us as parents. We want to protect our children. Yes. Yeah. We really don't want to talk to them about it. But... They feel it. They pick it up from us. And in the case of the sibling like Deanna, she had her own grief Mm -hmm. and she was picking up on mine. And so I really did need to face it. We as parents really do need to face it head on. And one of the things I learned about grief, because I didn't know anything about it. I just knew what everyone else knows when they encounter it for the first time. And much of that is not helpful. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of ideas about grief and how we should do it that are not helpful. So I learned that we need to face grief, that no matter how we feel about it, we need to face it and that that's the best thing we can do. It feels painful and it doesn't feel like the best thing, but Mm -hmm. it really is. And so with a child, Deanna and I would talk about when we hurt We would talk about missing David. Mm. She had her, they used to play ninjas. That was something they played together. David kind of liked ninjas. And then when he had his cancer, one of the visualizations that they did with him in the hospital to fight his cancer was to be a ninja Mm. fighting his cancer. So they played this. And Deanna would say after David died, she had her ninja and her ninjiness allowed her to see her brother. Mm. There was one day when we were, when I was very sad and I was crying and she came in and saw me and I said, oh, I'm just re- miss, really missing David because he's not here anymore. But we would talk about how David was still with us, mm-hmm. you know, the presence of him was still with us. So I kind of corrected myself and I said, I mean, you know, he's not physically here, so I can't get hugs from him anymore. And she said, oh, mommy, he still hugs me. You know, like this matter of fact. Yeah, he still hugs me. Okay. Wow. And he, she would talk about her ninjiness, and it allowed her to just really be, uh, you know, really have him there. Wow. But at some point along the way, I, you know, a, a year or, or two later or, or a year later she said to me that she had lost her ninjiness mm. and david didn't she told me david didn't sound the same anymore and mm. she, and that was always interesting to me that she said he doesn't sound the same anymore and she didn't have her ninjiness and she just really couldn't connect with him anymore wow faded away for her. There's an idea about grief and way back in I don't know, the 1950s, 40s, whenever Freud was doing his thing. But he really encouraged us with grief to move on. You know, that's where so many of that, so much of that advice comes from people is this idea that he perpetuated that healing from grief means moving on and and being willing to let go of the relationship. So people have always tried to do that. Mm-hmm. There's a newer take on grief called continuing bonds. Have have you heard about no. The, well, continuing bonds is instinctively, I, I say it's instinctively what a griever knows, which is, I want to hang on to this. That's it.
0: Relationship. Mm-hmm.
1: And not only do we want to, but it's healthy to do that, to remember, you know, to do those things that remember our loved one that we've lost, whether it's a, a ritual that we do, whether it's remembering their birthday in a certain way every year their death day in a certain way every year, Mm -hmm. whatever it may be, that this is healthy. And for siblings, it's particularly healthy because it's the way that they can carry on this sibling relationship. And for Deanna, it was so helpful because her brother grew up for her. She, She kept her big brother even though he wasn't here to grow up with her. And that is just really a helpful part of healing that I'm so glad that we are now recognizing because I still talk to people whose family tells them, you should take all of those pictures down. What are you doing keeping all of their, you know, you're still got their belongings and things. That's not healthy. You need to get rid of it. No. Yes. And- <laughs> And we as grievers know that. We know it makes us feel better. But sometimes we're made to think that there's something wrong with us because we're not letting go. A lot of grievers struggle with that because that's what, quote, unquote, well-meaning people will tell them. So I was glad that I learned that from Children's Hospital and that I should talk to my daughter, let her know how I was feeling and have conversations with her and even though she's very young that's one of the first things that adults can do is just be be open about our own feelings and ask them you know are you i'm really missing david today are you missing him too Mm -hmm. what what do you do when you're missing david or you know and and open up these conversations so that kids can talk about how they're feeling too
0: yeah wow So that was, was that your first sort of encounter with like the grief work that you started? So let's talk about the grief work. So you've created Good Grief Parenting. Tell us about Good Grief Parenting.
1: Well, it started with me having Deanna to raise and saying, oh, and paying attention to how do I do this? I didn't, I wanted to know how do I do this? And I knew other parents would too. And I started, and I I remember this was one of the earliest pieces of sort of my attitude about it, because while I was still doing parent ed, which I haven't done now for a number of years, a mom came to me with her own issue about her kids, and I shared this with her. And it's not a new metaphor, but, but it applies so well to grief, and that is the idea of the lemon. And so with Deanna at the age of three and a half, I thought, okay, her life is not what I want it to be. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing I can do about that. Her dad has moved out, her brother has died. This is not what I want for my beautiful daughter. Yes, It's a big, fat lemon. I have it. There's nothing I can do about it. I have this lemon, what am I gonna do? I can either bite into it, whenever I think about it, I can bite into it and it's gonna be bitter and sour and I'm gonna wanna spit it out. Or I can say, you know what? I'm not gonna deal with this lemon. I'm gonna pretend it's not even here and I can put it on the, on the counter in the kitchen And I can leave it there, not pay attention to it, let it sit there, and eventually it will rot and it'll start to stink. Or I can hold this big fat lemon and say, okay, what can I do with this big fat lemon? And I can slice it up, and I can add sugar, and I can add water, and I can stir it, and we can have some good lemonade. And it can be refreshing, and it's what we did with the The lemon. So the whole time I was raising her I was feeling like I was making lemonade if something wasn't the way I wanted it for her and I and I still have my temper tantrum moments where I even now where I will say I just I don't want Deanna to not have her brother Mm -hmm. let alone I don't want to not have my son Mm -hmm. but even now I still see so many ways where I think I want her to have her brother right now Mm -hmm. but we had to make lemonade we had to do a lot of adventures when things weren't the way we wanted them I'd say you know we're on an adventure so eventually I had to look at this and say okay. From what I'm learning, what can I give to other parents? And I quickly realized, and I was focused on the parenting piece because that's what I did with, um, you know, for my career in in my classes. And I was focused on the early childhood age because as I started to see more resources coming out for grieving children... There's more now than there was 20 years ago. There still isn't a lot for siblings, Mm -hmm. but what there is, is for older children, you know, elementary school age kids and teens, people recognize their grief and there are social workers and counselors that work with these kids, but there isn't a lot for the early childhood age for the child who says half of me is gone. Right. And so I'm focused there. And I'm focused on the formative years and parenting in the formative years. And I tell people, you know, you need to start with your own self care. And I realized that the place that I needed to start was the beginning part of what I got, which was recognizing all of these things that are not helpful about what we believe about grief. Let, you know, people don't, people would say, I wanted to call you Michelle i was thinking of you but i didn't want to bother you Mm. i'd always think oh i wish you had you know i would have loved for someone to call me Mm -hmm. i could have really used that knowing that someone was thinking about me maybe i actually wanted to talk about it and Mm so There's some of these ideas we have about grief and grievers that is just not helpful. So in my program, Good Grief Parenting, aside from the self-care piece that's so important, I also want to orient parents first and foremost to how they think about grief and what might be holding them back from grieving in helpful ways. And so we look at a lot of the ideas about grief. And I, I actually have four, what I call four heartbeats of my good grief parenting framework. And the first heartbeat is good grief beliefs. And it uh, helps adults recognize all of these things that I've already said, that our impulse is to protect children from grief, but that's not the wise thing to do. In fact, I go further to say that childhood is the best time for us to learn about grief, Mm -hmm. because we're all going to be exposed to grief, not necessarily death of a loved one, not necessarily that loss, but grief is a response to a loss or a change when Mm -hmm. something is different, and it's gone for good, and we all experience that in childhood, and adults usually try to help kids just get past that bad feeling yeah if we can instead help them to understand that it's normal and natural to feel those feelings when you've lost something or something familiar is gone that's important to you we can help kids learn how to cope with grief so that when they're our age you know I had to learn as an adult how to do this well Deanna already knows how to do it wow I'm so glad she's got that. And so first and foremost, learning good grief beliefs so that we can help our children learn that. And the second heartbeat is continuing bonds, which is not only um, about the the fact that it's that continuing the relationship with our child is healthy and help, you know, helpful for our other children and for us, but other relationships as well. The continuing bonds, with, for example, in a family where uh, the two parents are, you know, in the household together, or even if they're not, they're likely that they're grieving differently and sometimes they can't support each other well. And so there's a lot of understanding each other's perspective and having permission, giving permission to grieve the way you need to. Family who are trying to tell you how you should be grieving when they're, they're kind of off base. They're, you know, they're telling you to get over it or whatever. So continuing bonds is about the relationships that we need to maintain and how we can do that in order to heal. Um, And then the third framework starts to get it more into the parenting piece that really can apply to any young child. And that's the piece that I call essential messages which is the things that children need to know about themselves to grow up healthy. You know, I, I value you. You can handle hard things when a family is living under the, the shadow of grief and the presence of grief that will be there for the rest of our lives. We, you know, we just handle things differently. And so there is kind of a grief informed way to parent and give really young children these essential messages. So that's the third piece. And then the fourth piece is what I call choice actions, which is the time when we look at all of these things that we've learned about grief and what children need, and we put into place what we're actually going to do as a family And how we're actually going to live as a family going forward so that these things are solidly in place and make a difference in how our kids grow up and how we live forward. And I use the term live forward because moving forward is putting one foot in front of the other. Uh Living forward is being intentional and saying, I don't want to die with my child you know, I don't want to abandon uh, the good things in life with my child. And I certainly want my living child to be able to look forward to bright possibilities. I want us to look forward to being joyful again. Yes. Which is one of the hardest things for us after we've lost a child. Mm-hmm. We even feel guilty about it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But the choice actions piece is the place where we solidify our decisions. I talk about having a good grief mind view, which is different than a mindset, because a mindset is I don't like the idea of being set. Mm. I like the idea of having a view, okay. a view ahead of us. Mm-hmm. We, we live forward. We look forward. We have a good grief mind view that says, I'm open to good things ahead of me. And then we live in a way that tries to bring those things back into our lives and into our children's lives. So that's the good grief parenting framework.
0: What do we as adults, parents need to know about how children grieve?
1: We need to know that we're not likely to see it. And that doesn't mean they're not doing it. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest mistake that parents make. Because we are so wary of exposing children to grief. We don't want them to hurt and we don't want to make them hurt. So if they don't look like they're hurting, we think they're doing okay. And they're probably not. And this really goes for any age. And the reason for that uh, is partly that, Kids can't be in grief the way that we can be and manage it. They're still, they're developmentally lacking some of the, you know, the skills that we have and the experience that we have. And so they kind of need to go in and out of it. Children will often be, and, and young children, very young children, will do their grief through play So they'll be just playing away and you think they're, you know, they're just playing, but they're really processing their grief. Mm. And they're not that the reason, you know, I said earlier, the conversation is important because many times children won't bring it to you. And partly it's because they maybe don't have words. Mm -hmm. It may be because they don't want to upset you. They're aware that you're upset and children often will be very quiet and not show their feelings because they don't want to upset you. They can see you're upset. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. that's important. Children may behave differently so the ways that we know kids are grieving are if there's sort of an unexplainable, they're they're they've got stomach aches or they're not sleeping well mm-hmm. or they don't have an appetite anymore, or they're uh, for an older child to start acting younger again, being whiny, being clingy, um, not being confident, not being willing to do things on their own, things that you thought they'd grown able to do. They no longer act like they can do. They kind of want you there. Uh, That's a common way. Sometimes kids will be more belligerent, more aggressive. Mm. And, you know, they may be, they may get consequences and punishment. They may be doing this at school. They may be doing this with you we need to recognize that if they've experienced a loss this is probably grief yeah. it, especially if it's uncharacteristic for this child so the conversation we need to have is this isn't like you what what's going on are you feel and even asking them are you feeling mad because david died are you feeling sad because your friend died are you you know what are you what are you thinking about right now what are you feeling right now and helping kids get in touch with how their body feels the other thing i would say about deanna is that if she had not said to me mommy half of me is gone i would not have realized how deeply she was grieving Mm -hmm. because i didn't see her cry you know she cried when she was missing david when he was still alive but after he died and she was a little older than, I didn't see her cry. She was very well behaved. In fact, she was so well behaved that we would say to her, it's okay for you to be upset. She didn't, some kids do that. They become real uh, adult pleasers. They don't want to rock the boat. So Just really being aware of their behavior and being aware that whether they look like they're grieving or not, they probably are. And so give them opportunities to talk about it just by asking them. And you can say, I'm feeling really sad. Do you feel sad too? If you don't know how to open the conversation. They may talk to you or they may not. That doesn't matter. You're telling them it's okay for them to talk. And that's Mm -hmm. what's really important.
0: You talk about mistakes. You talked about biggest mistakes parents and adults make regarding children and grief. What do those look like?
1: And that really is that piece that I've been talking about. Those two pieces: one, thinking that a child's okay because they look like they are. A lot of parents do that. You know, if you when you talk to parents, or I'm in a number of Facebook groups, and you maybe are too. And often parents in there will say, "I don't know how my child's doing. They look they look like they're doing okay, so they must be." You know, no, they're they're not. They really need for you to broach the topic with them and let them know it's okay for them to come to you. Don't make them talk, Mm -hmm. but allow them to and open the door so they know that it's okay. Especially young children may not have the vocabulary now, but eventually they will. And then they'll know they can come and talk to you then. If there's been this silence and no one's talking about it, When they get older and they have, you know, their understanding of it is going to change as they grow up. And if you haven't made it a safe place to talk about this, then they will never feel they can talk Mm. about it and they won't be able to process it with you. So one mistake is believing that. The other mistake is not having conversation and making that normal. The third mistake is avoiding the words death and dead.
0: I've heard that a lot recently. Tell me Uh, about that.
1: Well, because those words have a very specific meaning and they are what happened to our loved one and anything else is not really what happened to our loved one. And young children don't understand. They don't understand death and that's okay. We still use the word death and dead so that they can start to understand it. And we tell them what it means. When someone is dead, their body doesn't work anymore. They can't see. They can't taste. They can't move anymore. They can't hear us talking. That's what happens when a person dies. The child doesn't understand it necessarily. They don't understand that it's permanent. But when they get older, they will grow up knowing my brother died. And as they get older and know what death means, they'll know exactly what happened to their brother. Kids who are told your brother's gone away, gone away means maybe he can come back. Mm. Someone was telling me recently that their dad told their child that grandma had gone to the moon, which seems really (laughs) harmless. (laughs) <laughs> but and the child didn't understand i mean the child the, if grandma's on the moon the child knows they can't see her but they realized as the child got a little older that the child wanted to be an astronaut and they started to figure out that the child had in their mind that grandma was up there and they could go see her oh. <laughs> when they get old enough they'll know but yeah but for, for kids who are told something other than the truth at some point when they realize the truth when they're told someone went away and you won't ever see them again even though they were told they'll never see that person again at some point when they realize that person is actually dead they'll know they can't see that person again and it's like it's like losing them all over again because they had in their mind that if they're gone away, they can come back. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's just another word and it's the truth. And so we as adults are really, I mean, I had to teach myself. We all do when we have to use the word dead. We, it's hard for us as adults.
0: Because death and dying is a part of life. But grief with children very young isn't learned in the classroom. It's not learned. It's not really normalized for children so young. So how does a child connect with friends with grief? Or what is that relationship like? How do they build, you know, like let's say, for example, that we have Deanna, five years old, and she's she's learned to use death and dead and dying, but the children in her classroom haven't right? How do you sort of navigate those conversations between young children when one might be in a more open, um, more advanced, learned phase about
1: grief and the others aren't? That's a really good question. And it is, it's the idea of normalizing. And there is so much around that. Part of it is that we as grievers we get to make grief normal. And so when Deanna lost her brother and she'd go into a new classroom, I would always tell them, she lost a brother, his name's David. She may talk about him, we talk about him at home. If she talks about him, you will talk about him with her. I mean, it's just like, this is is part of her reality. You know, I don't never tell people that we use the word "dead." We just use the word "dead." Mm-hmm. It it's the, it's the accurate word. Mm-hmm. And I also just really encourage grievers because one of the hardest things for us is dealing with how other people have such a hard time with grief. Yes, we've got our own grief, yes. and half of what we do is try to make other people feel better yes. or walk on eggshells because we don't want someone else to, you know, we don't want a conversation that we're having with someone to suddenly take a left turn right? because they realize that our child died and yes. they don't know how to handle it. Exactly. Yeah. And we deal with that all the time. So I just encourage us as grievers to just name the elephant in the room. Mm. People would often ask me if I'm comfortable talking about my loss. And I'd always say, yes, I talk about it. I'm very comfortable with it. I talk about it. It's something I talk about. It's something Deanna talks about. It's just, it was part of her life growing up. We just talk about it. So we model that. Mm -hmm. uh, And as I said, when I was with my moms in my classroom, I would say, We're not going to avoid this, and if I get teary, that's okay. That's just what I have to do. But I just really want to embolden grievers to say, this is our family's experience, and this is how we handle it. We talk about it. And I then also encourage people who are support people to not go away, because so often support people do go away. They don't know what to do. They're so uncomfortable. And instead, I encourage them to just say, I don't know what to say to you right now. I'm so, you know, I'm, I'm just really think, feeling for you. I don't know what to say. Because they don't have to say anything. But if they let us know that they acknowledge what happened to us, that means so much. Just for them to not ignore it. Yeah. So that those are the two sides of the coin that in the work I do, whenever I have an opportunity, I try to educate people about this for the person supporting the griever to not be afraid of it. One of the one of the best things someone can do for us is mention our child's name. You know, they they're afraid to do it because they're afraid they're going to upset us no, you're not going to upset me. I think about it every minute of every day. Right, To know that you think about it sometimes too is a gift to me,
0: mm.
1: you know, so I help people understand that. And I still, I will say this too, even though I've lost a child, I still am awkward with other people, you know, sometimes. Mm. And I still want, especially when we're in this field now, you're You're contributing to this. You're supporting families who have lost children to childhood cancer. It doesn't mean that you or I really, you know, know anything more than other people do, but we're just looking at it through a different lens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I sometimes I want to help a family, too, but I can't. We just have to know that we can't just being the caring presence is really all that we can give them. Yeah.
0: Oh, Michelle, I have so many more questions I want to ask. We'll talk about this on the next one, but I'm really interested to know if you've done work with siblings, not just siblings, but also friends of children that have died and seeing what your perspective is on that and if we should approach it similarly to how siblings grieve. So when we come back, I think yeah, we'll... I think
1: that's a really good question.
0: Let's talk about that. All right. We'll do this again on the next one. Okay. Very good, kid. Love you.